It's um, with great joy that uh, we're able to welcome uh, Gordon MacDonald to be with us um, today. And um, I'm sure he really doesn't need that much introduction. If you've not read any of his books, you should. Um, they're for sale today, just a little uh, hint on that. Um, but really, the Bible talks about people who are gifts to the church. And uh, I know that uh, Gordon's impact on people's lives through his writing over many years, on people that he's never met before, never been in the same room with before, um, has been huge on my own life. I know my journey following Jesus has been hugely impacted by Gordon and his writings. And some of his books, are, you know, over there, Reordering Your Private World, um, A Resilient Life, which is outstanding. Um, and so, really... Can we just give Gordon a very, very warm relational mission welcome as he comes to speak with us this morning? Gordon, you're most welcome. I'm very thankful to be here. This is uh, my second opportunity to visit this part of the UK and to be in Ipswich. Uh, I was on the phone with my wife, Gail, just a little while ago. And we were talking about the first time that both of us came. She was with me on that occasion. The subject was, was marriage in the ministry. And uh, I was on crutches from an accident where I had uh, torn the tendons in my knee. And um, that's six, seven, eight years ago. Uh, I'm a lot younger today. <laughs> but uh, thank you for the warmth of your welcome. And I look forward to these hours when we uh, are able to transact together. Um, it's going to be a fun morning because uh, there's no PowerPoint, which is just fine with me. I don't think PowerPoint's going to make it to heaven, but I could be wrong. <laughs> but uh, I will be uh, trying to convey my thoughts more with the use of words rather than visuals. And uh, I hope that a few of you will uh, find in some of my lists of things something worth taking down in terms of notes. I'll be watching. It doesn't seem very long ago that um, people would come up to me when I had the privilege to be the preacher or the lecturer, and they would say, you're awfully young to be in the ministry. Uh, how did you start? And then overnight, people started coming up to me and saying, when are you going to retire? Uh, and uh, as I look out across the audience, I see people who could be at retirement age, although not many of you. And I see some of you who look like you're in the early stages of life in which ministry is a beginning point, and the rest of us are somewhere in the middle. When I said us, I did not mean me. But uh, there you all are. And uh, I have discovered in these last few years that our world, particularly our Christian world, which is the one that we're interested in today, is changing so fast that if you have been outside of institutional leadership for more than a few years, uh, which I have been out, of, I've been out of institutional leadership now deliberately for a number of years, you quickly forget the techniques and the methods that are being used today to lead a church. So as I stand before you, there's a certain humility uh, in my own heart because I know that uh, there's a lot about running churches that you know that I do not know. So it would be folly for me to talk today, if I could. Uh, it would be folly to talk about how to make a church grow. It would be folly to talk about how to manage 
a church program. It would be crazy for me to talk about things like uh, what's the new vision for the next years. There are a lot of people, and probably many of them are in this room, who could talk endlessly about that stuff and be very helpful, but I'm probably not one of them. Uh, What a a person like me can talk about with some degree of experience and authority is the inner life, uh, what it means to strategically plot a ministry life that's more than 50 years at length. I can talk about what it means to struggle, what it means to fail, to be humiliated, to be shamed. I can talk about those things. I can talk about spiritual disciplines because without them I wouldn't be here this morning. Uh, So there are certain topics which uh, one can speak of from my perspective that are beneficial. There are others that I cannot. But as I look across the audience, uh, I have made a painful discovery. I I could conceivably be wrong, but it looks like I'm the oldest person in the room, Uh, which uh, is stunning, really. Uh, But it gives me the opportunity uh, to talk like a father. Uh, to speak out of that lifelong experience, which uh, I am so grateful for in these days. And with that in mind, uh, I want to talk today. The subject is being a pastor or the activity of pastoring when you make a verb out of the noun. And I have been one of those all my life. I've been a pastor for 45 years in some churches, which I'll describe to you in a moment. Uh, But even when you're not the preaching pastor uh, any longer, your paycheck, well, I don't get a paycheck any longer, uh, your paycheck doesn't come from a church or a church organization. But even if you don't get that, you never stop pastoring. There is a sense in which uh, I go through every day of life uh, and look at every human being who comes toward me, and I look at them through the eyes of, of a pastor. And I ask myself the question, in this 30-second transaction or this hour or two, what can I say or what can I do that will bring to this particular person what the pastoral gift is supposed to bring? I can't shake it. It's, it's deep in my DNA. And if you live as long as I've been alive, it will probably get into your DNA too. So that said, when I think of pastor, for example, I... I think about an important word which I'm going to establish right now, the word presence. Because the job of a pastor is to be present to people. And in a moment, I'll I'll say something about why I think that's a significant statement, although you may not be impressed with it yet. One of the great German preachers or pastors at the end of World War II was a man that some of you perhaps are acquainted with. His name was Helmut Dielicke. Uh, He was a great man. He was a scholar, uh, taught at the University of Hamburg and other places, but uh, preached regularly at the great cathedral in Hamburg. And one of the responsibilities he had was to preach to the German people during the closing years of World War II and to be from a moral and spiritual perspective one of those who could give the German nation now defeated some things to think about that would create the new Germany. Now, there are those who would love to argue whether Dialica had um, a correct way of doing that. I find his books incredibly inspiring, particularly his book on the parables of the Christ. But I'm thinking about his autobiography when Dialica wrote toward the end of his life about what it had been like to be a pastor. 
And at one point he talks about the day that the Germans were suffering through the Battle of Stalingrad. I think that was 1942 or 43. And the German troops were pinned down by the Russians. The weather was absolutely obscene. German soldiers were dying by the scores every day. And in the midst of them at the Battle of Stalingrad was a close friend of Theolekas who had been a chaplain among the German troops. And as that battle wore down to its end where the Germans were utterly defeated, this man who was a chaplain was given the privilege or offered the privilege to fly out of the battle area back home to Germany where he could be safe. His body was riveted with um, frostbite. He was in dreadful pain. Uh, His health was uh, very precarious. And he was offered the chance to leave that battle scene and get home to safety, to medical treatment, to being rejoined, to, to rejoin his family. And he said no. He refused to evacuate. And Theolica writes in his autobiography, and one day he died, we know not where, his body was never recovered. But the important point that Theolica was trying to make, which deeply impressed me when I read this story, was this was a chaplain, a pastor, who determined that he was going to stay with his men to the very, very last, even if he was to die with them. And I thought as I read that, that little but most profound story, this illustrates better than anything I can think of the role of the pastor who is present to his or her people and makes sure that he establishes those things that can only be established by presence. I grew up in a pastor's home. My father became a pastor at the age of 19 or 20. He went to Bible school for one year, but he was so much in love with preaching the Bible that he didn't even stay to graduate from school. He took a little church in the northeast part of the United States and within a couple of years was preaching to several hundred people, which was a large church in those days. And um, I grew up in that home. He talked my mother into marrying him. My mother was a beautiful Swedish uh, woman, the daughter of Swedish immigrants. Uh, her looks were so stunning that she easily could have gone to Hollywood. Uh, and all the men of her generation, when they saw her in the streets, just kind of followed after her, every one of them, wishing they could meet her. And uh, men made perfect fools out of themselves trying to get my mother's attention. And my father just made the biggest fool out of himself of anybody. And uh, he got her, he, he talked her into the fa- idea that it was the will of God to marry him. <laughs> Most practical use of doctrinal preaching I've ever heard in my life. Anyway, at the age of 21, 22, my parents were married. My father is now a pastor. And 10 months after they were married, I came along. I know you're doing the math now. Everything's fine. <laughs> my, my parents had a terrible marriage. They, they literally destroyed each other emotionally, spiritually. I'm not even sure that it couldn't be said that they destroyed each other physically to some extent. From the, from the get-go, it was a terrible marriage. And so, in one sense, is, although I may say nice things about my father and my mother, I, I come out of a very tragic, dysfunctional home uh, where um, a lot of things went wrong. And as Gail, my wife, would say, you know, you're a miracle that you survived that. And maybe I am. 
Nevertheless, my father was a good pastor to the people, even though he couldn't make it work at home. People loved to hear him preach. People felt very touched when he approached them and engaged them. And as a small boy, I used to watch this with great admiration. Even at the age of four, five, six years, I was aware that there was something about my father. Could I, could I call it a magic that touched people and made them respond? And only up until recently, where people finally have died out, could I go any place in America that people would not come out of a congregation after I had preached or spoke and say, I came to Christ under your father's ministry. I learned the Bible by listening to him preach. My father knew more about the book of Romans than Paul did. It was amazing. <laughs> and when I was a boy, I, I saw all this, and, and I wanted to be like that. Uh, years and years and years later, when I was uh, uh, in my 30s, I was speaking one day, and a woman came out of the crowd, and she said, I was your babysitter when you were a small boy. And she indeed was. She babysat for me three or four times a week in those early years. And I said to her, tell me everything you remember about what I was like as a boy. She said, well, the thing I remember most was that your favorite form of play was to take me over to the church and we would play worship service together. You would, you would usher me to one of the pews, and then you'd go back and you'd come down the aisle, and you would kneel at the front of the sanctuary like your father used to do before worship began, and you would pray. Then you'd get up and you'd open the hymnal, and you would lead me in two or three hymns, just the two of us. And then you would take the offering. That was a special. <laughs> and then she said you would try to preach. And when the preaching was over, you'd give the benediction, and you'd come to me and usher me out the back door and shake my hand as I left the... She said, we did that over and over and over again. Well, that's fascinating, because it helps me to see that deep in my DNA was this idea of being a pastor. My father was one of these people who loved to teach, and if there was nobody around to teach, then I became his victim. My father took me on calls where he went to visit people in hospitals and homes. I watched as he would open the Bible to a sick person, read to them, put his hand on their shoulder, pray for them. I saw all that. In fact, at the age of 14, one day, the phone in our home rang. Uh, a man in our church had been rushed to the hospital. My father was out of town, couldn't do anything. And so without saying a word to anybody, I got on the bus, went to the hospital with my mother's big black Bible, walked into his hospital room and said, I've come to call on you. And I read to him the same scriptures I heard my father read so many times. I put my hand on his shoulder. I prayed for him. And he was astonished. Where does a 14-year-old kid get this kind of stuff? But you see, I'd been taught that kind of thing. My father would give me carbon copies of his sermon notes, and I'd sit in the front row and listen to these sermons and see how they were constructed and how they were delivered and how they touched people. I sat in the room sometimes when the deacons or the elders were meeting and conveying or, or thinking about the, the life of the church together. I saw how the business of the church was conducted. So it was not surprising that in my 20s when it came time for me to become a pastor, most of what I knew how to do was not learned in seminary where I got my theology degree. It had all been learned by watching my father 
be a pastor over those years. And that has been a long-term part of the heritage of, of my whole life. My father was a Baptist, uh, and uh, that meant uh, in those years we always had the Sunday evening service. Most people in the younger generation know I have no idea what a Sunday evening service is like. Uh, we will resume them in heaven, I suspect. But the Sunday evening service was, was really quite an experience. The sanctuary was almost always packed. We would sing for 35 minutes the great old gospel songs of the 19th century. Fanny Crosby's Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. Uh, Isaac Watts, some of his old songs from the 17th century. We would sing Charles Wesley. Uh, we would sing the great gospel hymns that came out of the Victorian era. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. That There was a great hymnody back there that young people today will never probably hear. But in my age, we, we loved it. And we literally raised the roof singing four-part harmony, creating a choir that we thought not only was a, a delight to God, but it, it brought us together, the singing of the four parts, which is not done much today uh, because now most things are in three parts. So the, the band plays the, the harmonies and we just sing the melody. Uh, but I remember another era when we did things differently. I'm not, I'm not saying I want to go back to it, but, but that was it. And then my father would preach these sermons, which almost always had an evangelistic edge to them. This was the service in which people were drawn to have faith in Jesus. And so you always knew when the sermon was about to end, although it seemed endless to small people like me. But the sermon would always come to a conclusion with the baptistic notion of what liturgy is. See, those of us who are not in the Church of England have no idea what liturgy is, but the Baptists have this little bit of liturgy that happens over and over again, and this is the way it went, word for word. My father would finish his sermon, and he would say, Shall we pray? Then he would say, While heads are bowed, and eyes are closed, and Christians are praying, and no one is looking around, those of you who want to come to Jesus tonight, will you just lift your hand? Just lift your hand. And I will see your hand. And I will pray for you. Then you can put it down. So everybody's bowed their heads. No one's looking around. I'm sitting in the front row. <laughs> Desperately, I want to look. But my father has said no one looking around. So you're very circumspect about this kind of thing. And, he, and I could hear him over and over again. I see that hand. I see that hand. Yes, sister, you can put that hand down. Yes, brother, you can put the hand down. Many people are coming to Jesus. And if many people were coming to Jesus, then he wanted to sing uh, an invitation song, which would go on for 35 more verses. And uh, that's the way the evening went. But, but the point I'm trying to make, I, I, um, even as a small child, I wanted to be the person who looked who got to see who was lifting their hand. That's a pastoral instinct. A pastor is a person who looks, who sees things at levels and dimensions that most other people don't see and aren't even aware exist. And so I learned in the earliest days, even though it was kind of crazy, even though some people would question my sanity, but the fact of the matter is I grew up wanting to look. I married my wife, Gail, at the age of 23. We, we have 55 years of marriage behind us now. Um, 
she sends her greetings to you. I talked to her just a few moments ago, and uh, we were able to pray together about this day because both of us are, 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 are pretty much involved. And um, I married her uh, four months after I married her, after I met her, and uh, we uh, got into this business of being a pastor because uh, even though I had a call to ministry, she also had one, and we merged those calls. Uh, God seemed to be happy about that. And uh, we gave our lives to the notion of a congregational ministry. Over the years of our marriage, for 45 of those years, we were involved with four different churches. I want to tell you about them for just a moment. Four different churches. The first church was out on the borderline, if you know anything about American geography, uh, on the borderline between the state of Colorado and the state of Kansas. It was 176 miles east of the city of Denver, where I was doing my seminary work and earning my theology degree. So twice a week, we would get into our Volkswagen Beetle with our firstborn son. We would drive those 176 miles, and uh, we would spend two, two and a half days with the people and then go back to Denver. And often in the midweek, I would drive those 176 miles again to go to a, a special prayer meeting or whatever was present to those people. No one ever told me in those days that was an absolutely crazy way to live. Uh, I would leave at 4 a.m. in the morning to make this drive, often because the road was so straight across the American prairie, uh, I could drive the Volkswagen and do all my seminary reading at the same time. Um, You don't want to know how that worked. The church had a record attendance one Easter Sunday morning of 55 people. Uh, But I thought that was just incredible. All the families in that church were ranchers. Each of them had a ranch that was five to 8,000 acres. Uh, They would uh, run hundreds of head of cattle on those those acreage. They would grow wheat and silage, we call silage. A pastoral call for me was to go for a whole day riding horseback uh, with the rancher, herding cattle, or driving a truck full of newly harvested wheat to the grain elevator, which was 25 miles away. The church and the little home we stayed in was seven miles from the nearest paved road, 25 miles from the nearest village or town. So you can get an idea. When you look at a Western on television, one of these Western movies, we've lived that way. And um, that was the place where God, for three years, just kind of ground me down to powder forced me to uh, enter into a culture that I'd known almost nothing about, to recognize that if you're going to have presence to people as a pastor, you can't make those people come in your direction. You have to go theirs. And that's something that a lot of young men and women have to learn the hard way. There's an old Chinese poem from ancient times. Can't tell you who authored it. But listen to the simple lines of this poem because it means something when you think of the world that Gail and I went into in that farming church, that ranching church so many years ago. Here's the poem. Go to the people. Live among them. Learn from them. Love them. Start with what they know. Build on what they have. That simple set of lines is a core secret to the success of pastoral ministry. 
You don't go to a church and ask the people to come to you. You go to a church and you go to the people. And in those three years, I had to learn that principle. If these people were going to listen to my sermons, I was going to have to put it into their vocabulary, much like a missionary has to speak in the indigenous language of the country or the tribe or the village to which he or she go. So in those three years, I learned the farming vocabulary. I learned the rancher's culture. I did things the way they wanted things done. And the result was that over a short period of time, some trust was built. So that when you offered suggestions or you found it important to say something that was a rebuke to the congregation, people would listen to you and they would receive your word because they knew that you loved, loved them. And a major key to that in those three years out in that ranching community, an amazing part of it, an important part, was the way my wife Gail did things, the way she entered into the life of the women in the community, the way the children felt her love. And because they saw this young couple, Gail and Gordon, working side by side in the life of that congregation, there was a trust that was built, and, and in those three years, a lot of wonderful things happened. But you can't stay in a church like that for very long where, until you get an invitation to go in another direction. And so our second church was located in what's called the Mississippi River Valley, which cuts right down north to south in the middle of the United States. And this is the area that includes the cities of Minneapolis, uh, nearby Chicago, St. Louis, and down at the bottom, the city of New Orleans. So the whole country is cut by the Mississippi River. And now the church is a different kind of church. It's, it's several hundred people in size. It's made up of men and women who make their living not herding cattle and growing wheat, but people who work in the old factories that were very prominent 50 years ago in American industrial life, the factories that make the cars, the factories that make the refrigerators and the the machines. These people work eight hours a day at repetitive jobs they hate. They do it only for one reason. It offers a paycheck. And they're members of labor unions, which often are very angry and very political. And all day long, people complain to each other about the work they're doing, yet this is their sole provider of life. They dream about the day that they will retire, and they will move to a warm place like Florida or to other situations where, um, where life will be easier. How do you preach to people for whom life is, is essentially a miserable life? where people are negative-minded in so much of what they have to do. And that was the task that I had as a pastor to that particular congregation of people. What does it mean to be joyful people? What does it mean to go to work each day as a Christian and try to somehow infect the atmosphere with the presence of Christ? What does it mean to be a good worker in a community you don't expect to live with for a long time. How do you lead a church which doesn't imagine its own future? It's just living from week to week, month to month. And for a number of years, that was the assignment Gail and I felt with those people. And it was a wonderful time. We grew to love them very much. We felt a keen amount of their affection as I tried each week to open the Bible. But more than just the preaching, 
The trust that got established was being with those people, going to the places where they worked, walking the assembly line with them. I remember the day I climbed straight up a steel skeleton structure of a skyscraper that was being built six floors off the ground. I was so scared. Um, I'll never forget the moment. I will never do this again. But, but the man I wanted to visit was six stories up, and we sat at lunchtime eating out of a brown paper bag our lunch while our legs were kind of wrapped around a, 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 an I-beam, and if either one of us had fell, we'd, it was six stories straight down to the ground. But that's what a pastor does. A pastor goes to the places that are important to the people. Uh, many pastors expect the people to meet me at church, but that's not where ministry really gets done. It's ministry gets done where you go to the places where the people are, where they have their expertise, where you can see them in motion, what's important to them, what are the challenges they face. And as a younger man, I was beginning to learn that. Then there came a time when Gail and I were introduced to a third church. Now I was 32 years of age. This church is in the area of the city of Boston. Boston, where you find Harvard and MIT and 125 other universities. Boston, which is ringed with all of these research and development laboratories that are building the most sophisticated electronics equipment to fight modern wars. It's all there. And many of those people were members of this church. There was the man who was the leader of the team writing the simulation package for the Abrams tank, which won Desert Storm, the war in the early 90s. Another man who led the team that built all of the radar installations in the AWACS plane that both the UK and, and the United States run even until this day, flying that fly at high altitudes and intercept all of the radio and radar signals of, of countries with whom we're not particularly friendly. All those kind of people in this church um, who have what we call black box security. Um, they love when you ask them a question to say to you, if I answer that question, I'll have to kill you. People who on Monday morning after a weekend at church fly to Washington every week and spend two or three days working in the Pentagon on stuff that's so super secret, their spouses don't even know where they are for the week. One of my closest friends worked for 20 years on a Defense Department project and for 20 years could never tell his wife, never tell his children, never tell people like me anything he did from the moment he left home to the moment he got back home in the evening. How do you preach to people like that? How do you enter into their lives? How do you establish presence? How do you help them define the role of the Christian in a world like that? A little side story. Some years ago, I went to Moldova, which was part of the old Soviet Union, uh, to uh, speak to various churches for seven or ten days. And they assigned a man to be my translator for the whole time. He traveled with me, and we formed a, a wonderful friendship. He was, he was a godly man, um, a, a treat to be with, spoke English beautifully. And one of those days, I said to him, so what have you done all your life to make money? What's been your day job? He said, oh, I, I've been in the Russian Air Force. I said, how interesting. What did you do for the Russian Air Force? 
He said, well, you know, your country is producing all of these electronic warfare things for your planes, your stealth bombers. He said, I was on a team that was spending all of its time trying to figure out how to thwart those kind of weapons. I thought about that. I said, this is insane. I'm preaching the gospel every week to people who are making these things, and I'm now preaching the gospel through the heart and mind of a man who spent his whole life thwarting these things. What are these people going to talk about when they get to heaven someday? <laughs> I can hear the Americans saying, well, we built this, and he said, yeah, we knew all about that, and we did this to, so that wouldn't hurt us, and, and they'd go back and forth unleashing all these secrets. I mean, how crazy can the world get? when you have believers on both sides of the battle lines. And yet many of those people sat in this congregation. And for 20, 22 years, I had the privilege of, of being their pastor. There was a fourth church. If you're watching the timeline and the logic, you can see where I'm going. The first church, very small, out in the middle of nowhere, living, uh, full of people who were born in that area and will die in that area and have gone to the same little tiny church for their entire lives. What do you preach to those people about? Then a second church where people can't wait to get away from where they are, who, who hate life as it's being lived, but they've got to survive. Now a third church where you've got a congregation full of people with research degrees and PhDs and our engineers, some of the smartest people in all the world, uh, who are right on the front edge of computerization and all that kind of stuff is coming. Now you're preaching to them. Now there's a fourth church, and this one is in the heart of New York City, right in Manhattan. So we've gone from the Kansas-Colorado state line to the center of one of the more important cities of the whole world. Now the church is made up of people who are half or more your age, who are spending their days on Wall Street, who are um, managing the billions and trillions of dollars of the world's financial structure, who are people who can by the push of a button in the wrong way, create an economic disaster. And they're coming to church on Sunday morning, age 28 to, let's say, 38 or 40 years of age. After that, they burn out and they go some other place. And they're sitting in your sanctuary. Young men who are struggling every day with the availability of prostitution and pornography. Young women who are living very precarious lives and never know when they're going to be assaulted. And, and, and they're in your congregation. They're young believers. What do they need to hear? How do they need pastoral presence? What's going to happen to these people as the years go by who are caught up at the very center of what sometimes could be said to be an evil empire? all infused with the whole issue of money and materialism. So when I talk to you about those four kinds of churches, what I'm really trying to say is, in every one of those, the major question that's always in front of you every day is, how do you establish presence in this particular culture? What are the needs? What is it you're trying to get people to become and do? What does it mean to become a follower of Christ? There's not one of us, not one of us, who can do this kind of thing from a natural perspective. Obviously, from a spiritual side, we deeply need the work of the Holy Spirit. And from the more visible human side, we need people around us who can give us the insight and the perspective uh, to go in the right direction.
In my seminary days, I was, part, I was in a culture in the early 60s, in the student culture, in which there was an enormous amount of anti-church spirit. Almost every person in my seminary class was committed to the notion, I want to serve Christ, I will do it any place but to be a pastor. I'll go to Campus Crusade, to InterVarsity, I'll be a missionary, I'll be a therapist, I'll be a professor, but don't ask me to be a pastor because the church is dying all over America, preaching is in decline, I don't want to be one of those that are part of a group of losers. And I must tell you, that's the way I felt to a considerable extent. As much as I'd grown up in the pastoral home, uh, thinking the pastoral ministry was wonderful, I'd reached a point in my life where I wanted to have nothing to do with being a pastor if it was all possible. Well, when you get people like that who are so negative, so critical, I know none of you would ever have been like that, but uh, in, in my age we were, you spend all of your idle time at coffee breaks talking about uh, church and how ridiculous are the sermons and how poorly done are the programs and do Christians ever do anything right and we would just talk endlessly as students about all this stuff and if someday God so allows we will straighten the Christian movement out we will answer all of these questions that have come at people over the millennia we will be the people who finally perfect the church that's the way we felt in our idealism one day we were having one of these kinds of discussions at coffee break time. You can imagine seven or eight young men sitting around a table. In those days, very few women ever went to seminary. So it's all male. And we're sitting at this table, we're drinking our coffee, and we are complaining one more time about the church. And suddenly, from behind me, I was aware that someone was approaching, and when I looked up, it was one of our professors, the Old Testament professor. He stood there and listened to us for a couple of minutes. And I was aware that suddenly he reached down to my pile of books, which were beside me on the floor, and he reached for my Bible. And he opened my Bible up, and he, he went through the pages. And uh, he got to the book of Acts, chapter 20. And he turned to a passage which, at that point, I didn't appreciate very much, but it was where Paul is speaking for the last, or thinks it's the last time he'll speak to the elders of the church at Ephesus. Now remember, Paul had spent at least two years with those people. They had his fingerprints all over them. These must have been leaders that he had recruited at one time or another, appointed, trained. They're his boys. And this may be the last time this side of heaven he sees them again. What do you say? And my professor friend has turned to this pastor, uh, pastor, passage and he puts the Bible in front of me like this. He says, Gordon, would you please read these two or three verses to everybody? And I looked down to where his finger was. And this is what he says. And this is what I read. I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God, then these words, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. For I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare this flock. I read it. 
And the professor said, would you read it again? So I went back and I read the text again. When I got through, the professor said, read it again. So I read it for a third time. Now everybody's listening very carefully. I'm reading slower and slower, trying to make sure I understand every word. The professor says to me, who's he talking about? I guess he's talking about the Ephesian congregation. How does he feel about the congregation? Well, it looks like he's, he's worried about them. Why would he be worried about them? Because there's coming a day when people will come in among them and try to divide them and, and, and commit them to false belief. How does God feel about that? Well, it looks like God is concerned about it. How would you know that? Well, the congregation is valuable. How valuable is it? Well, it's valuable because God purchased it with his own blood. I had never heard that before. I grew up in a tradition, maybe some of you did too, where we were taught that Jesus died for us, died for you guys, he died for you guys, maybe you guys, and you guys. (laughs) Jesus died for me, I knew that. No one had ever said to me, Jesus died for the church. That there is a sense in which the church, like a bride to her husband, is this incredibly prized possession. I remember the day I married Gail. I went out early that morning by myself and I kind of just opened my Bible to look for some inspiration and came to Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. I remember as a young man suddenly realizing, good grief, if you marry this woman today, what you're saying is, I'm willing to die for her. No one had ever shown me that before. Christ died for the church. And then the professor said this, if the church at Ephesus is this valuable, if the church is this vulnerable, if the church is this precious to God, then I would be very careful if I was you what I say about the church. And with that, he walked away. That conversation sealed the matter of me becoming a pastor. If, if the church is this precious to God, that he purchases it with the blood of his son, what place in all of the Christian vineyard is it more valuable to be than to establish the presence of yourself among the people for whom Christ died? And from that point forward... I moved toward being a pastor. In my senior year at seminary for a few months, I was part of a ministry where every weekend I flew to parts of the country and would preach on Sunday, and I would do a seminar on evangelism on Saturday. And uh, within a few months, I had been in maybe 30 different churches, all from west to east. And every weekend when I went to these places, I would stay in the homes of, of lay people in that church, not a hotel at that particular point, not the pastor's home, but the home of, of, of leading lay people who made that church tick. It was not at all unusual on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night for me to end up staying up late at night after 
the spouse had gone to bed and the children were asleep and 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 most often it was it was a man and you'd sit up till 12:30 one o'clock in the morning and every week i would hear a comment that sounds like this you know our pastor is a wonderful person we all love him we're thankful for him but he doesn't know that we have jobs he doesn't know that the majority of our life is lived out in the marketplace. He only thinks we live in church. And I, I thought about that over and over again. Isn't that interesting? Because that's how I've been trained. Life is in the church. I remember the day a layman said to me in my church, I was begging him to come to a, a, a Tuesday evening function, and he was saying, no, I can't come. And I kept pushing and pushing, and he kept pushing back. And finally he got exasperated with me, and, and, and these words were so profound. He said, Pastor, I have something you need to hear. You need to understand that when I leave church on Sunday, there are many times when I don't think about this church for the next four days. Well, that was a shock. <laughs> he said, you're paid to think about this church 24-7, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And that's good. You do a great job at doing that. But that's not me. That's not my call. My call is to run a business. My call is to lead a family. My call is to live in my community and do what I can do to lift the quality of living in the place where we live. No one had ever taught me that. Having grown up in a pastor's home, I didn't see life that way. But he was right. My job as a pastor was to help him live in his home, in his work, in his community, in a way where Christ could use him to bear witness to the claims of the kingdom. I didn't learn that in seminary. I learned it the hard way as a pastor. I learned it by going into homes and listening to people talk at 1230 at night. And often on Sunday I would preach in that church, and on Monday morning before I flew back home, I would, I would go to the places where these people worked. I met their secretaries. I met their bosses. I met their teammates. I drove in sales routes and watched guys try to sell widgets. I went out to construction sites and watched men running big cranes and bulldozers. And my whole perspective about being a pastor changed. I began to realize these men and women need courage. They need insight. They need assurance. They need respect. They need to be drawn out. They need to be trained. And that's my job, to be present to them in their world, not mine. And so I've tried to live that way over the years, not always doing a good job of it. But I'm profoundly touched by the words of the French monk, de Foucault, who used to say, I am present to God and present to people. This is what it means to be a pastor. Now, all of that was introduction to what I came to say today. Because <laughs> I'd like to make this point. And the point is this. There are certain core functions of the pastor which every one of us must share no matter what kind of a ministry we're in. They are like the rudimentary disciplines that we teach a soldier from the first day that the soldier arrives to be trained to be a soldier. What's the first thing we train soldiers to do? To march. Why is marching so important? Because it's in marching, like singing, 
that we draw people together into a unit where they will fight together and they will fight for each other. So what in the pastoral ministry is the equivalent of marching that we all need to do? I am in no ways critical of this thought, but I do take notice of it, that year after year now, we are all invited to seminars and conferences and to watch videos in which very successful Christian leaders tell us about how to run and build big churches, how to manage teams of people, uh, how to do all this swell stuff that, that every one of us would love to be a part of. But when do you go to a conference to learn how to march? When, when do we say to one another, no matter what your age, no matter what your station in life, there are certain core things that we all do as pastors, and every one of us, like it or not, is in some way a pastor. What are the core functions that we must learn to do well before we do all the other big, snazzy, wonderful stuff? And I'm going to give you four ideas. The first idea of a pastor is that he or she learns how to model the faith. We are, to our people, a text person that shows them something about what it means to be followers of the Lord. Secondly, as pastors, we have to engage in the function of mentoring, or maybe some of you prefer the word discipling, but we have to develop people to be servants of the Lord. Thirdly, a pastor not only models the faith, a pastor not only trains people to go deep into the faith, but the third thing a pastor does is he or she is a caring person. They have a, a nose, an eye, an ear for people who are struggling, who are not making it, who need a word of courage, who need a word of hope who need to be lifted from whatever the sleaze of their life is all about and told once again they are the beloved of God. And the fourth thing a pastor needs to learn in the marching side of ministry is how to lead people to faith in Jesus Christ. Leave any of those four out and the ministry of a church suffers. It slowly diminishes into something that leaves people hungry and dry and left out. And until those four things are firmly established at the core of our ministry life, I know I'm exaggerating to make my point, it's really not worthwhile to learn how to do anything else. I hope I haven't said that so strongly, and I hope it's not an intimidating that every day the ministry is all about modeling for people, mentoring people, caring for people, showing people what the gospel is if they want to accept Christ as their Savior. So let me look at my watch and uh, see if I'm on schedule. I think I am. I want to pause for a moment now. And uh, I'm going to startle you because you, you're sitting there so quietly. You actually look like you're listening to me. But I'm smarter than that. I know a third of you are some other place in the country right now solving a problem in your head. But anyway, I want to stop for a moment. I, and I'm just going to look at you and say, what have you been hearing? What words have you heard spoken? Or what idea or two 
have you heard in the last half hour that provokes you, uh, that you you find interesting to think about? So just uh, we can't have any sermons, and I know that's dangerous to say for a bunch of preachers, but, you know, Throw, throw out a word to me, or, or just three or four words, something you've heard in the last half hour that you find important to you. I'd like to hear what you have to say, any of you, quickly. So just coming back to what you said about people found it difficult because of you weren't going to a secular job. You worked in a Christian environment all the time. Uh, I've had it before people said to me when I worked in a Christian environment all the time, it's different for you because of you're always focusing on God. And so I guess my question is, you talked about then how you had to be present to them in the workplace and like how you went. Did you, did you find that actually that really did dissolve that issue in terms of like, I've, I've said you, yeah, you've said you found it beneficial, but did it really deal with that situation and people actually could identify with you help like, in the fact that you were... Do you get what I mean? Did it break down the barriers that were there? It has a profound effect. I, I can't overemphasize the importance of the pastor spending more and more of his or her time off church property. Um, you know, in my age, for example, I'm, I'm thinking as I speak, um, when I was a young pastor, one of the major jobs of a pastor was what we called calling. My father would say to my mother, he would say, I'm going to be gone all day calling. That was, his, that was 80% of his job, calling. What was calling? That meant you went, most pastors in those days would pride themselves that they visited in the home of every church member every six months. Or the real superstars, oh, I've been in the homes of my people every three months. So calling was everything. Well, then around 1970, things began to change. Churches became very complex in their programming. Uh, there was a point in my, in my largest church, Grace Chapel, where I was responsible at the top of the organization for 167 programs. I asked my father one day when he was retired, how many programs were you responsible for? He said three. Something happened in the church in the 70s that made us become programmers. And what it did, it did a couple of things. It turned the pastor away from being the caller to being a CEO. Now, you, now, I would bet many of you spend a large percentage of your time running programs, hiring and firing staff, having staff meetings, solving problems. The old-time pastor couldn't relate to you. That's the first thing that happened. And the second thing as a result, the programmatic church sucked people like you and me into the center of the church program. It became conceivable that you spent your whole week in the church building, in your office, and never really had any significant touch with an unbeliever or a new Christian because you were running these programs. That's had a dreadful effect on a lot of men and women in ministry. It, it, it just freezes your soul. Uh, it used to be my father went calling in, in my heyday of pastoring, people made appointments to come and see me. And often they waited three weeks. They'd call my secretary. Is there any chance I could see the pastor? Well, I'm looking at the pastor's schedule, and he can see you next month on the 25th at, at 10 a.m. in the morning. He'll have 45 minutes. You call that pastoring? 
but that's the way a lot of people live today. Now, what you do is you change that. You don't bring people to your office to see them. You go out and have breakfast with them. You have lunch with them. You go to the places where they work. You learn what their challenges are, what their problems are, what makes them happy, what makes them unhappy. Now, that begins to be reflected in your sermons. I'll give you an example. We, we had a man in our congregation. His name was Herb. And he was the head of the lab for Hewlett-Packard, uh, the maker of all those computer printers. And his team was always stress-testing the products. I went into his lab. What do you do? Well, we, we drop printers six feet, eight feet. We see what kind of damage will happen in six feet of, of, of free fall. We freeze the computers. We heat the computers. We expose them to every kind of problem conceivable to see whether our product will stand the test of stress. You hear a sermon illustration here? You, you, can you hear Gordon the next Sunday morning preaching on the subject of faith and perseverance and saying, you know, this last week I visited Herb Ubelauer in his laboratory and watched him drop a Hewlett-Packard printer eight feet from the top of a ladder. Everybody, ha, 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 ha. So, you know, that's exactly what God is doing again and again. He's allowing us to face the stress testing of the lab to see how deep our faith is. Suddenly the laughter stops because there are scores of people in that congregation that morning who feel they're in the stress test lab themselves. But you see what you've done? You've taken someone's marketplace experience from the week. You've recognized their point of expertise. Normally they only see Gordon at his point of expertise behind the pulpit. Now Gordon has seen them in their point of expertise. He's given value to their life and he said Jesus can be in that lab with you. Something has changed in the relationship between pastor and people. Now people know, this man knows my language. This man knows the challenges of my life because you've been present to them. To the extent that we're not doing that these days, we've got to get back to that. And that may cause us not to work so hard for just bringing more people into the church, but deepening the people we have. Does that help? Okay, I won't answer every question that long, but you got me on a roll there. <laughs> it's your fault. Somebody else. Key words, ideas. Uh, so far, the right has been very vocal. The left has been very, very silent. Is that a political statement? <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. God purchased the church of his blood. That was, that was my, my thing. The church is the bride. Thank you for that. The church was purchased of God's blood. Oh, per- okay, yeah. See, see I, uh, I don't pick up the accent. <laughs> but, but that's just as good. This is a Brazilian accent. Thank you. Church is valuable, vulnerable, and precious to God. That's an incredible thought, isn't it? But uh, not expecting people to come to you, but going to where the people are. Yeah. Most, I, I, the, the, I, I'm full of generalizations, but most often the people who come to us are the wrong people. The people that you, the right people, you have to go to them. Somebody over here had something to say. Okay, first here. Yeah, um, pastors look. The pastors look. More, we'll have more of that in a minute. Yeah. Um, I think of the scattered church, not desperate, but distributed. Um, so, oh. 
family, wherever we might be. Thank you for saying that. I, here is a place where pastors need to always be doing a homework in an upgraded sense. What are my greatest wishes for people in my congregation in their homes? What does a woman of God, a man of God look like as a father or a mother behind the front door of their home? I need to have an answer to that question so I can preach and teach and disciple toward that. Same thing in work. What does a godly person bring to the workplace that theoretically nobody else brings? Or if somebody else brings it, it's not brought as well as the so-called Christian brings it. What, What are our wishes for our people day by day by day? Let's take the first of those four points for a few minutes and see what we can do to beat this one to death, that the job of a pastor is, first of all, to model the faith. Let me go back to the scriptures for a moment and uh, stream through a passage that uh, most of you will know very, very well. Thank you. Here's Paul writing to Timothy. I can't get enough of these two letters to Timothy. They may be actually three or four letters, but uh, they've been bundled in this way for us. And, And by the way, a fifth book that's worth adding on to this is the book of Titus. The Titus letter and the two Timothy letters. We just need to keep going back to them again and again and again. Paul is concerned about Timothy because they, the two men have totally different temperaments. And they're a course of two different generations. Paul's the old guy. Timothy is the young man. Timothy will carry on long after Paul is gone. But on the other hand, Timothy is not the leader that Paul was. Timothy is not what you'd call a tough person. He's not confrontative. Um, He may be, in one sense, the extreme pastor. He he just loves people too much. And so sometimes he's a little bit softer than he ought to be. So you get this feeling of of Paul pushing Timothy to be more aggressive. But but here are some words in in 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse uh, 11. I, I could have started any place. Command and teach these things. Don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. But set an example for the believers. Now notice the five categories for the example. Set an example in speech, in life, in love, in faith, in purity. What's the genius of those five categories? Why did Paul pick those five and not others? I don't have the slightest idea. I I think it's an interesting question, and it can be speculated. Were those five categories places where Paul felt Timothy was weak, so he highlights them? Are those five categories the places that Paul, knowing what he knew about Ephesus, that those were the places where the church needed the majority of its teaching? Were these five areas that Paul himself had personal difficulties with? So he uses them as examples. Why those five? I don't know, and I don't think it's necessarily important to know, but I do think it's important to understand that he thinks that Timothy ought to be an example in the way he talks to people the way he uses his words, his mouth. We all know people, for example, 
who are gifted at saying the wrong thing at the right at the wrong time. They, they, they don't use their words well. They hurt people unnecessarily. Or they, they exaggerate, or they lie, or they do any number of things with words that hurt people and destroy people and destroy the unity of the congregation. We, we know those kind of people. They're around. Timothy, teach people how to be holy in the way they talk and use words. Not only do it in terms of speech, but, Timothy, show people what the Christian life is all about by the way you live in life. And, and that's going to be my point for the next few minutes. That pastoral ministry begins with my willingness to be a model of the faith, not a perfect model, but people have got to see me as a pastor, as one who's working each day to make sense of the Christian life. And this is how to live it, so that people can copy me. Now, Paul and Timothy live in a world where nobody has books. We've got a book for everything these days. We've got ten books for some things. We've got a hundred books for other things. Have you read so-and-so? So-and-so's got a new book out. And you keep looking at these books. And, you know, to a considerable extent, almost all these books say the same thing, just in different ways. In Paul's day, people didn't have books. The only way you could teach people what the Christian life looks like is by modeling it. This is the way a godly woman or a godly man does things. And other people would say, oh, okay, that makes sense to me. He did it, she did it that way, I'll do it that way. That's how growth was developed in those days. And and by the way, when Paul uses the word example... This is a carefully chosen word. And readers in those days would, or listeners would know that Paul's talking about the rabbinical transfer from the rabbi to the disciple. The job of a disciple when he hooked up to a rabbi was to watch this rabbi carefully, closely, day after day, and to become exactly like him. Paul understood the role of the rabbi and the disciple. That's why he'll say to the Philippians, I want to know Christ so well that I'm willing to suffer like he suffered, die like he died. I want to get to a point where no one can tell the difference between Jesus and me. That's the ultimate goal of the Christian life, to be so like Christ that people see the living Christ in me. So the way you live, Timothy... To be an example to people. The word example, tupas, I stamp myself upon another person. I had a mentor that I'll mention this afternoon who kind of was present in my life for over 60 years. He died four years ago at the age of 96, and I had the privilege of burying him, and I, I have his title and I have his office at Denver Seminary today. You can't know how many times over the years when I was in various different places, people who knew him and knew me would come out of the audience at the end of the day and say, you know, when you said that, I saw Vernon in you. They couldn't have given me a nicer compliment than to, to see, to say, I see your mentor in you. 
the way you said that, the gesture, the point you tried to make, the way you made it, that was him. He stamped himself upon you in the way you live. Paul says to Timothy, be an example not only in the way you say things, the way you live, but in love, which I think is the word relationships here. Show people what the Christian life is in terms of the way you develop relationships, the way you treat your friends, the way you treat the opposite gender, the way you treat your critic, your enemy. Show people what it means to love, not just in the spoken word, but the way you love people. And the toughest people demand the greatest amount of love. Over the years that I was an active pastor, Gail and I would sit on the front row every Sunday morning through all three worship services together. We would sing the hymns together, often with our arms around each other. People saw uh, the way she would encourage me they were very much aware that as I got up from the pew to go to the pulpit to preach, that the last thing that would happen as I got up every week, Gail would put her hand on my arm like this, and she would whisper to me. She would say, be a man sent from God. Preach for change. I heard that every Sunday, year after year. Be a man sent from God. Preach for change. And people began to pick that kind of thing up. They saw the way she was constantly encouraging me, challenging me to be at my very best. And, and it was not unusual for people to say, you know, when I come into the sanctuary on Sunday morning, the first thing I look at are, are Gordon and Gail together in the front row. Because if they're together and they're functioning, the whole world for me is right side up. Well, some of you are going to say, that sounds like a, 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 a sick kind of hero worship, and, and, and I hope it doesn't. It's just modeling the faith. It's demonstrating to people what it means to be a married couple, to serve Christ together. One year, we, we had a young couple that came to church early, it seemed, every Sunday, and they would sit in the second row, right behind Gail and me. And this went on month after month, and, and we got in the habit of greeting them because they were close by, and never thinking anything of it. They just liked those seats. About a year later, they came up to us at the end of a, a morning, and uh, they made it very obvious. They wanted us to see her engagement ring. And uh, so we said all the appropriate things. What a lovely ring. You know, you could hardly see it, but it was. <laughs> they, were, they were a seminary couple. Both of them were studying theology at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. And one of them said, we need to tell you the story behind this ring. A year ago, we, we really liked each other. We loved each other. But, but this young woman was determined she would never, ever marry a pastor. Because in her teen years, her pastor at church had apparently so utterly failed in life 
that she had a totally sour view of pastoral ministry. And this young man was deeply in love with her, and he was also feeling the call of God to be a pastor, and he was, God had this real problem. How could he solve it? And so he said, I determined that I would bring her to Grace Chapel every Sunday morning and sit behind you and not say a word about why I was doing this, but I just wanted her to watch the two of you. Interesting. So this woman sat for a whole year watching this going on each week. And at the end of a year, in some way the Holy Spirit used it to break down her defenses and to say, you know, maybe marrying a pastor isn't the worst thing in the world to do. I think I'll do it. But it was a reminder to me, if, if you please, I, I'm, I'm a little bit slow here, but it was, it was a reminder to me that you never know as a pastor when you're being watched. Out in the marketplace, out in the larger world, you never know when you're being watched. And so when Paul says to Timothy, be an example in love, you've got it. How do we love our friends and our spouses? Be an example, Paul goes on, in the way you walk with God, your faith. Let people see what it's like for a man or a woman to have a rich spiritual life in which Jesus is very real and pregnant in the experience of each day walking in the Christian way. And finally, Timothy, be an example in purity. Not just sexual purity, although that's probably implied there, but but in your motives, in the way you deal with life in the real world. Be a pure woman or man. Why are these five here? I can only assume that there are five things that every pastor uh, should be concerned about in modeling the faith and the meaning of the Christian life. Here's Ignatius of Antioch writing to pastors. This is 1,600 plus years ago. Allow your people to learn a lesson at least from your works. Be meek when they break out in anger. Be humble against their arrogant words. Set your prayers against their blasphemies. Do not try to copy them or get back at them. Show yourselves to be their brothers by your forbearance and let you be zealous as imitators of the Lord. They were wrestling with this stuff 1,600 years ago. That, that the pastor is meant to be a model of faith so that the people see in living color what it means to be a follower of Christ. Now, let me give you one more list, and then we're going to close this morning down. For some time, I've been asking myself, what are the areas in in my life, at my age, that I need to model faith? I'm 77 years old next month. What's a 77-year-old man supposed to look like? Obviously, he's not trying to pretend that he's 25 years of age. So, what does a 77-year-old Christian look like? One of the leading theologians in the United States, well, actually in North America, because he's done his work for many years at Regent College in Canada, 
but his name is Gordon Fee, and, and I, I, I am fascinated with this comment. He said, the older I grow, the more I find the question, what does it mean to be a Christian relevant to my experience? You'd think by the time he reached the age he's at today, he would know the answer to that question, except that the Christian life keeps changing on us. 20-year-olds face a very, very different Christian life than 70-year-olds face. 40-year-old Christians, if they're growing, are living a very different Christian life than 80-year-old people are living. So what does it mean to a 77-year-old to be an example to people. Let me give you a list of things that are of concern to me. Then I'll ask you the question, what would your list be? Where are the areas at your age and your station of life as a pastor? You can be an example to people. Here are my 12. I need to be very careful about the use of my body. In other words, to be physically disciplined. I have a lot of friends at my age who are through with ministry and with a lot of action in life because they didn't take care of their bodies. To some extent, I'm here today because I have a spouse who takes care of my body. She insists, at least when I'm home, that I eat the right food. Every day she gives attention to the things we're eating. I ate a pizza in Cambridge yesterday that was so greasy. I mean, you could see that you could light a fire to the grease on the top of that pizza. If Gail had seen me eating that pizza, she would have died. She would have died. But she takes care of me nutritionally. She, she makes sure uh, that I get adequate rest. She supports my exercise program every day. And so every day when I'm at home, I have a workout period. And that's one of the basic reasons at the age of 77, I can keep on going and doing the things that I love doing because I've taken care of myself to some extent physically. Secondly, I want to be an example in the way I take care of myself intellectually. It's not without notice that I see that a lot of men stop growing at the age of 45 or 50. You ask them what they're reading. They don't have a good answer. You ask them what are the major questions they're pursuing in this day. They don't have a good answer. You ask them where they think they need to be changing in the next years and growing. They don't have a good answer. They're not thinking about those things. They're not up to date on what the great issues of our society are all about or what are the great struggles that we need to be praying about and contributing to. We should never stop growing intellectually. We must always be out on the cutting edge, not necessarily reading people that agree with us all the time, sometimes people who attack our faith and for whom we will never be able to give a good answer. But we need to know those things exist. I'm concerned, thirdly, about character. 
I see too many men at my age who are ending their lives angry and bitter and critical. I don't want to end life that way. I don't want to be a pastor who's known totally for negativity. If anything, if you're going to be a 77-year-old person who's going to do pastoring of one type or another, be a person that others like to have around. That's character. So I'm concerned about my character at my age, that the Lord would convict me and that my friends would be would would be uh, would be, would would be faithful enough to, to rebuke me, so that my character doesn't stop developing, and that it's appropriate to a person in their seventies. I'm concerned about my spiritual life. Each day, what it means to live a life of prayer, a life of reflection, a life in which the Holy Spirit is able to speak freely those things that a person like me needs to hear. So there are spiritual disciplines. I'm concerned about my financial life. I conceivably have to think about the possibility that I may live for the next 20 or 25 years with no income. That would be thoroughly possible. So am I taking good care of myself and my wife financially? so that we don't have to be beggars someday and lean on our children. How am I doing things financially? Well, that means you don't have to buy everything in the world that's available to you, that you live a modest lifestyle, that you're generous with what you give. And that's, that's another point. But um, how, are, how am I taking care of myself financially? Am I a generous person? That was my next word on the list. Do I walk through life each day asking, what can I give more than what can I take? How am I dealing with obsolescence? Because I am rapidly becoming an obsolete person. I'm very much aware. I'm very much aware that there are at least two generations of Christian leadership beneath me who are the people being invited to all the major conferences and writing all the best-selling books and getting on the television shows. Most people don't care about a 77-year-old guy, and, and that's fine. There comes a point in everyone's life where slowly you slip off the edge and people stop being interested in what you have to give. It's coming for every one of us, and some of us won't handle it well. And for the last 10 or 12 years, I've been working real hard at asking God to help me to handle growing obsolescence with grace. I have the word suffering down here. i got good news for you. Almost every one of us in this room will sooner or later suffer. Suffer failure. Suffer illness. Suffer loss. suffer from unjust criticism and opposition. There's a hundred different ways to suffer. And almost every one of us will face a form of suffering sooner or later. I have suffered. Most of my suffering has been my own fault. I can't blame anybody else. 
No excuses. But I know what it's like to suffer the consequences of failure. How good will I be at suffering? Because the most interesting thing about suffering is that's when we most often grow. And when people see the grace of God most powerfully in us, are you willing to suffer in order to grow? Crazy question. I got two or three more. I want to be an example in my convictions. What are the principles of biblical living and biblical thinking that I would die for? Now, as I get older, my list is thinning out. Uh, There are fewer things that I would die for, but those things become very substantial, very important to me. So what are my convictions? We need to keep revisiting our convictions on a regular basis. Here's one that some of you will think is a little bit frivolous, but it's desperately important. How good am I at resting and playing? When Gail and I reached our midlife years in the the 45, 46, 47 years, we, we made a a very, very alarming observation about where we were at that time as a married couple. We'd forgotten to have fun. Our children had pulled a very dirty trick on us. They left us. (laughs) My daughter, at the age of three and four, was my soulmate. Almost every dinner time in the evening, she would end the meal by leaving her seat, coming over, climbing up into my lap, putting her arms tightly around my neck, whispering into my ear the most beautiful things about how much she loved me. And, you know, it just went on and on. You couldn't get enough of it. And she would often say to me, Daddy, I'll never leave you. (laughs) I'd say, sweetheart, don't say that. Someday you are going to leave. No, Daddy, I'll never leave you. Sweetheart, someday a handsome young man is going to come along and he's going to love you and you're going to fall in love with him and he's going to take you away from your dear old dad. God help him. And I said that one too many times and she said, No, Daddy, if he comes along, he will live with us. Well, he came along and she left. My son married a lovely woman. They left. And Gail and I grieved. Me even more. Grieved. Hurt to say goodbye to those children. We'd stood at the sidelines and watched them play soccer and basketball and sing in concerts and do drama. It had been wonderful. And now that was all gone. And what did we do? We filled up all of those holes with more ministry. Write a few more articles. Take a few more speaking dates. Work harder at the church. Gail really invested herself deeply in the ministry and did an incredibly good job. But all we talked about for a year was ministry. It could have really damaged our marriage if we hadn't caught this. And I remember one day when I was just so 
upset with this. And I was reading a, a New York Times article on, on hiking in Switzerland, and I turned to Gail and I said, you know what? Next, week, next month we're going to Switzerland. What for? We're going to have fun. What are we going to do? I don't have the slightest idea. We'll figure it out when we get there. Well, how long do you have in mind? 31 days sounds like a good round number. And Gail, who's misorganized, started to shudder. But she went with me. For 31 days, we walked the alpine meadows and the pathways. We stayed in inexpensive little Swiss inns. We ate Swiss food. We read to each other. We made a lot of love. And we renewed our marriage. To this day, 30 years later, we look back on that month and say, that was the month when life began all over again. We learned again how to play, how to laugh, how to enjoy each other apart from the work. And particularly to you younger couples in this room, let me don't allow the church to intimidate you into losing your fun. Never forget how to play. And in the second half of life, it becomes more and more important